We've seen companies who have assessed a problem that never existed, you know, three months ago due to scale or due to perceived or real threat. Um, they've reacted in minutes and hours rather than days, weeks, or months. The citizens we serve, I think, rightly expect their government to operate on a 24 by 7 mantra. This is how they operate in their personal lives. And it's reasonable for them to expect the government, their government, that they pay for, is going to increasingly operate that way as well. The work of government at the end of the national emergency will be different than when we went in. How government operates is going to be different. And frankly, that's a good thing. It's hard to fathom the number of critical government processes that have had to evolve very quickly to meet the needs of the American people during the COVID-19 pandemic. And if this crisis has a silver lining, it's the accelerated modernization and innovation being born out of it. Meritalk is surfacing the untold stories and lessons of those efforts. Welcome to the Meritalk podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT and the COVID Crisis. In this episode, we turn to the General Services Administration, or GSA. federal IT community, we've all seen the analogy of the three-legged stool, technology, process, and people. After speaking with GSA CIO David Scheib, it's clear that a people-first focus pays great dividends toward agency mission success, especially in the time of crisis. GSA delivers the products, services, and facilities that agencies need to serve America. It oversees $66 billion in annual procurement, and it's the largest landlord in the world managing approximately $500 billion in U.S. federal property. GSA's job is to literally keep the lights on for the federal government, every hour, every day. Please join us for an in-depth conversation with David as he talks about how GSA has managed its workforce during the pandemic so its people can help serve the rest of the federal government during this challenging time for our country. So, David, as CIO of a large agency with a government-wide support mission, can you share your biggest priorities during the COVID-19 response? What are you proudest of? I guess the thing I like that we immediately focused on the safety and well-being of our workforce. We started to do a daily accountability tracker for all employees to see where employees were, if they're teleworking, if they're on leave, if they're working in a facility. And an important aspect of this was requiring that a rationale be included if people were going into the office. We we're under mandatory telework, and, and the administrator meant that. And so she and the other executives wanted to know, you know, what's your rationale for going into the office? And it's interesting. We find that that rationale can be all over the place, but it helps us kind of manage to that. If people want to go into the office because they want to get away from their screeching partner or their wailing kids, we can say, I understand you want to get away from that, but you know what? There has to be a legitimate business reason, some mission-focused reason for doing that. And what about successes? On the successes side, so we became a, a mobile-enabled agency five or six years ago. This is not new for us. We've been making the investment in tools and policy and practice to support our mobile workforce for years and years and years. 
Um, when we made telework mandatory on March 17th, the majority of our workforce had already done everything they needed to. They had the right technology, they had the right practice in place to work from home with almost no disruption of the work. And because of that, we're able to continue delivering on our mission. Uh, we're able to do the hard work of GSA across multiple business domains, regardless of where people were working. I guess something else that we're pretty excited about on the internal side is 99.6% of our workforce was telework ready. That means they had all the tools necessary to do their job from outside of the four walls of GSA. So that we could pivot to that, we found that telework ready and telework enabled and and just because you can do that doesn't mean you're going to do that. But the people who made the choice to telework when we flipped to mandatory telework were enabled by doing that. Right. Are there any other examples in addition to that very impressive telework number? I'll give you a couple of examples. Onboarding staff in the federal government sometimes is an inherently bureaucratic thing. But we're able to onboard people virtually literally completely virtually where they didn't have to touch another person, including getting them the secure access they need, the hardware they need, where we're shipping them hardware directly to their homes. We're able to get them the instructions they needed to get connected remotely, which first time connection can be a challenge, especially for people who have no experience in government. We figured out what policies we needed to change to be able to do that. You know, no wet signatures, no fingerprinting, things like that. But we're able to work all of that out. And then we're able to work out how to get people badges in a safe, secure way as well. Do you have any mission metrics to share, perhaps in terms of acquisitions or real estate during the pandemic? Sure, sure. So, you know, our customers have come to us with some very specific national emergency type need. They've asked us for PPE. IT and equipment in the not just thousands, but hundreds of thousands, um, screening companies and cleaning services and, you know, small business needs for, you know, laptops and other way and software so that they can communicate effectively. They've come to us saying, can you keep our buildings open? You know what? We've, we're the biggest landlord in the world and we've been able to keep our entire inventory of buildings open. We have not closed buildings except for occasional, um, you know, cleaning activities if there's some issue with somebody who was infected in the facility. Now, that doesn't mean people are in those buildings, but we've made it so that we're not closing buildings. The business mission of the agencies that we support that use those buildings are driving those decisions. It's not because the building's closed. If they don't want to go into the building for whatever business reason they have, that's their choice. We're very proud of that, that we've been able to keep all of these facilities open as a mission-critical location and facility. So what can you tell us about cybersecurity threats during the pandemic? On the cybersecurity side, that's an interesting question. People don't often ask that. Because we were a mobile-enabled organization, we needed to have a cybersecurity posture and stance that could recognize that. But one of the things that we found was that our investments into completely distributed cybersecurity, you know, TIC 3.0 modeled cybersecurity, that investment in time and effort and tools was critically important because 
what we've created is basically small little government facilities in each person's home. From a logical standpoint, the infrastructure they're working on looks and feels just like being in a hyper-secure government facility. And we did that because we knew the number of nodes that we needed to manage was going to explode. Part of that's because of Internet of Things and, and the organic growth there. But part of that is because we know that people are doing the work of government on any number of devices. Their government-furnished equipment, their cell phones, their, their tablets, their laptops, things like that. But then they fall back to you know, the personal PCs and things like that when they need to. So we've had to create a cybersecurity wrapper around that to guard against that and to protect that environment. The nice thing about it is when you create that capability, it doesn't matter if you have 15 or 25,000 or if you have 50,000 devices, you treat them all the same and they're going to be well protected. Yeah, on the cyber side, you know, we've had to be very thoughtful about it and check our math very regularly to make sure that the assumptions we made about living in such a distributed environment were actually going to work. But, you know, we're actually, we're seeing that when we check our math, we're seeing some really good outcomes there. And how has vendor support been? We've been very pleased. I'm not going to name vendors now, but we've been very pleased with some of our longstanding industry and system partners have been very, very quick to react and respond to either real or perceived threats to cybersecurity in this widely distributed environment. We've seen companies who have assessed a problem that never existed, you know, three months ago due to scale or due to a perceived or real threat. Um, they've reacted in minutes and hours rather than days, weeks, or months. And that's been profoundly heartening um, that that public-private partnership that we have where we consume services and buy product and work with our industry partners, that they've heeded the call by government to help us during this really tough time. It's been really fantastic to see. David, what's been your experience with the CDM program during the pandemic? So the suite of tools expressed in CDM, it's great that there's a vetted toolbox that if they know they go and utilize tools off the CDM mechanism, that they know that these things are suitable for government use. They've been vetted, they've been proven to work well, and agencies have had to strengthen themselves on a very rapid basis. If you can reach into a toolbox and grab a tool that's been vetted by the very important people over at DHS and by others who have used it in the domain in the federal enterprise, that really helps accelerate adoption of great tools, which really helps cybersecurity posture stand across the, across the organization. We are heavy users of the tools represented in CDM, not just because we're one of the partners with DHS on CDM, um, but because they're good, solid tools and good, solid industry partners doing good, solid cybersecurity work in the government space. Okay. Can you give us a wider picture of how cyber threats have been increasing during the pandemic? Yeah, two things. Uh, one, I've always got my scare tactic numbers out there. You know, we have four and a half million attempts against our computing infrastructure per hour and stuff like that. But that's, I mean, they're coming at us in, in automated fashion. And so you would expect really big numbers like that. And so you just have to employ the you know, really smart tactics that operate at the speed of light and electrons rather than, you know, analysts sitting there monitoring stuff. 
that's IT security 101. Doesn't matter if you're government, if you're the commercial space, stuff like that. But those defenses and depths appear to be working reasonably well. The other thing we've noticed is that the adversaries of the United States, they don't really care about, you know, what we might be going through here in the United States. Okay, earlier you mentioned the 99% telework enablement figure, and that's outstanding. Are there any tech adjustments that can be made for people that can't telework and have to do their work face-to-face? So that's a really good question. Uh, We started out our response to the national emergency assuming that there would be some people that needed to be in our facilities either all the time or on a regular basis. That 99.6% number, it's legit. We average between 95 and 96% people off-site every week. And we've found that there's actually very few people, 10, 15 people that need to be there all the time. And we're not a small agency. Uh, What we've found is that people need to parachute in sometimes for some specific mission thing. But we've also found that the very few mission reasons why that would be the case, we actually can resolve and fix those. So they need to go in once and then we fix it so they don't need to in the future. So that population of mission-specific reasons why somebody needs to be in a facility is small and getting smaller. And what is GSA's total employment number right now? Yeah, so it's around 11,000, 12,000 people. We're always onboarding. We're always offboarding. For devices, we tracked around 15,000. So looking at the big picture, what's been the greatest overall lesson for you since the pandemic began? I think the greatest lesson that I learned or relearned has been that when you focus on people, your end product, whatever that end product is better. And that's when you look inside at how you manage your people, but also how you respond and react to your partners. You know, I I mentioned earlier that we had supported and invested in a remote workforce, that we'd kind of generated the data to be able to effectively track and manage our workforce. But one of the things I learned very early in my career to keep the person at the very front of everything you do, and if you do so in pretty much any business discipline, um, you're going to be successful. What systems have worked best? And can you tell us anything about lessons learned regarding IT modernization, cloud, or cyber? The systems that have worked the best are kind of the ones that you would expect kind of at the foundational level, our VPN, our two-factor authentication, our security backbone. Things like that have worked very well. It's been a great opportunity to take what we've been doing already since we've been a mobile-enabled agency for for years now, to take what we've known already and kind of tweak and tune around the edges to get better outcomes. That's worked really well. Collaboration has worked really well. Our ability to communicate internally in real time with all the voices being heard in real time, has been instrumental in being able to provide service effectively to to our customers and to operate effectively on the inside. Our pivot to the cloud was really, really helpful. You know, we entered into the national emergency with 73% of our technology workloads running off-prem. You know, 52% was in the cloud and the rest was in managed service. And that made it so that 
when we really needed to do the work of GSA from anywhere, we were pointing back to GSA servers in some basement that hadn't had a pair of eyeballs on them in now, what, six, seven, eight weeks now. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, we're pointing back to you know, cloud service providers and, and whatnot with people who are staffed doing their jobs, maintaining systems, keeping stuff up and running and iterating those systems very rapidly as our mission needs change during the national emergency. So that's been just a real game changer. How would you rate intergovernment collaboration and cooperation at this time? What's working well, and are you seeing any opportunities for improvement? On the interagency collaboration piece, you know, I'm going to sound like a total homer here, but I'd have to give us an A, and there's a couple of reasons why. When we survey our partners, and this is internal and external, one of the questions we ask is, do you know who to contact? That is a surprisingly tough thing, especially when people are stressed. Sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah, I know to call the help desk, or I know who in GSA to call. When we survey our people, both internal and external, it's been an acute area of interest over the last couple of years. We've had three years running of increased scores in this area. And it's because we've been very intentional about making it very clear about who they contact. Internal and external to our partners, we hear time and again that people know how to get a hold of us. They know who to talk to. That's the first catalyst point for interagency, intergovernmental cooperation and good outcomes and stuff like that. In response to the national emergency, I've been very pleased to see things like Suzette Kent getting all the CIOs together on a regular basis and saying, we're going to have nearly an agendaless conversation about how we are getting together and how we're solving the complexities of the national emergency. You know, the business missionary of the federal government is so wide and diverse. We're like a loosely coupled, widely divergent conglomerated corporation where sometimes our missionaries are just so very different. But there's been massive value in getting everybody to talk about how do you manage your workforce? How do you use technology to enable your mission, even though the missionaries are so very different? What are the problem areas that you're seeing and what are the solutions that you're employing to help with that? And where can we help each other? There is opportunity for more collaboration. I've noticed that there are some agencies that had started their modernization work, but now during the national emergency, they've seen the value in ramping up and reprioritizing and accelerating those modernization efforts. And I think there's probably a fair amount of opportunity as those agencies accelerate that work to work with some of the agencies who've had some success there to say, hey, not only here's some roadmaps, but here's some tactical help that we can provide as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your days in the first week or so of the crisis? How have your days changed since then? Are you fully entrenched in the new normal now? And what does that look like? Like any COOP test, the first couple of hours, everybody's assessing what is the emergency that we're managing to and how do we need to structure our response to get the greatest value out of the work that we're doing to manage to that emergency. Um, It was no different during this. We actually started right before the national emergency. We actually did some stress tests on our infrastructure to make sure that we could operate and do the work of GSA in any location. 
And same thing with our partners. They were coming to us saying, you know, we're, we're stress testing our systems and here are the places where we need some help um, very, very quickly. So fair amount of assessment of how we're doing there and looking at places where we needed to pivot to some different outcomes, mostly at kind of the tuning level. We were very pleased to see that we didn't need to change much. We just needed to tune around the edges to get better outcomes. The work now is we've fallen into a certain cadence. We know where most of the pain points are, both internally and with our partners. And now we're just doing the work of solving those pain points. But over the last few weeks, there's been kind of yet a third wheel thrown in there. And frankly, I'm, I'm very pleased to see this. And that is the work of government at the end of the national emergency will be different than when we went in. How government operates is going to be different. And frankly, that's a good thing. There will have been some accelerated modernization tracks and so people will be operating business more and more like 21st century business should operate than before the national emergency. Some of the work is starting to focus on how can we sustain the advances that have been made during this critical time so that they carry forward after the national emergency is over. We've found that our government is increasingly nimble, increasingly reactive. And I don't mean like passive and you have to react quickly, but reactive to a rapidly iterating business environment. Each day that goes by as we get through this national emergency, we're more nimble and able to, to react to that world. And that's a good thing. A government that reacts and responds to changing business requirements as quickly as the commercial sector does and as quickly as the citizens that we're serving demand us to be is a good thing. And so we're looking at some opportunities to sustain the, the good things that have come out of this. Right. So what advice would you give to Dave Shive of three months ago? Yeah, probably I would say trust the plans we had in place, recognize that the rationale that supported and was the foundation of those plans was sound, that we had tested them enough already like I mentioned a moment ago, we spent some cycles testing and validating that the plans were working well, even though intuitively we knew that they were. So I probably would have spent less time testing and validating and more time solving problems. I probably also would have more heavily weighted and focused our time and attention on the huge side of the equation. We did so right out of the box, but I would have done so even more aggressively and recognize that even though we have good tools in place and good business process, and good policy and good practice and all of that, that ultimately without the humans of GSA to do the good work, that all that good stuff, all that good planning and technology and stuff would have reduced positive capacity. And that recognizing that it's not just stressed technology that we had to be looking out for, but stressed people. And stressed people work at a reduced capacity as well. So we might, I might have, as a people manager, paid more attention to the person and said, you know, what can I do to make it so that you can indeed focus on your families and on the people that you're taking care of, as well as the mission, the important mission of GSA. We got there very, very quickly, but I probably would have pushed that up 
to the very, very beginning of what we were doing. Are there any shout outs you'd like to give to team members at GSA, maybe across the government? Yeah, yeah, sure. I do have to start with my team in GSA IT. I always say to them, and I mean it, that we have the finest IT organization in the federal government. And they've shown that, they've absolutely confirmed to me that they're the finest IT organization in government. It's great to have that confirmed by the Partnership for Public Service and other organizations like that. Um, but it's also great to have a, something like a national emergency confirm that as well. I've been especially proud of our teams who communicate both internal to GSAIT and our comms department. I've mentioned, you know, uh, looking at the whole human and dealing with the whole human, that you get the best outcomes when you do that. Part of that is effective communication. And I've been so proud to be a GSA employee during this time. I think we can say with a fair amount of confidence that every decision we've made has had the people of GSA at the very forefront, followed very closely by a nanosecond behind by uh, mission and mission enablement. But people have been at the very front of all of our choices and decisioning. And then across the rest of government, I'm really thankful to Suzette Kent for creating an environment where the CIOs and the CISOs under grant and have been able to come together on a regular basis and swap war stories and talk about, you know, good things that we're doing and the tough things that we're doing and creating a community of people who could get together and learn from one another and work with each other to get the best outcomes for government. It's made me very proud to be a public servant, not just in the civic tech realm, but in the public service realm. I see dedicated public servants getting through a tough time meeting the mission of government. It's been really heartening to see. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Have you thought about how your team will function in a world without traditional conferences? Do you envision a new way of interacting with industry? Yeah, um, that's a good question. You know, FAST 2020 was a perfect example. We had to, in a very short amount of time, pivot that thing to a virtual conference. And we had to make sure that the technology was there, that we could hit kind of the classic hallmarks of the conference, which was not unidirectional conversation, but a bilateral two-way conversation with our industry partners and with GSA, you know, executives and practitioners. We've done that kind of thing for a long time, never really at this scale. Well, we've always done that at small and medium scale. We'll now be able to, I think, apply that very effectively at large scale because we've kind of stress tested that capability to, and gotten some pretty good results. It's not always perfect, but then any conference you have in person is not always perfect either. So we've learned that we can do even that part of our mission at scale. You know, one of the things that makes us a reasonably effective organization is we stay current in whatever our business discipline is, whether it's design and construction or, you know, acquisition or policy or technology or whatever. We've found that during this time, we've had to be more intentional about staying current. Sometimes that means logging on to, you know, a, a web-based conference where we're consuming information, not giving it like the S2020. That's not the same as going to a conference where you kind of can give your undivided attention to that thing. We've had to learn some new and creative ways of consuming information that allow us to not only gain the value of consuming that information, but also uh, what that communicates to the others that we're working on. I'll be honest, we're in the middle of a national emergency. 
the instance where we can send somebody to a five-day conference and they can devote 100% of their focus on that conference is zero. We've had zero examples of that in the last eight weeks, but that's the right thing. What we've had to do is be able to consume information to stay current while also doing the important work of GSA during a national emergency. Right. So in your experience, what has been the most useful remote work tool or capability that's allowed you to stay effective at work? Okay. I guess the thing would be my blanket and my house cat. (laughs) I got to be honest, here in the 21st century, there's such blurry lines between work and our personal lives. Guarding that work-life balance is, it's the right thing to do. What we've found is that business in the 21st century is a 24 by 7 thing. And the citizens we serve, I think, rightly expect their government to operate on a 24 by 7 mantra. This is how they operate in their personal lives. And it's reasonable for them to expect the government, their government that they pay for, is going to increasingly operate that way as well. This hard barrier that exists between personal life and work life. I see it softening a bit, and I see people happier in their work because of it. You know, I've had conference calls where my cat jumps up in front of my camera, and I'm like, oh, excuse me, stuff like that. Let me put this, you know, cat down off to the side. And what I found is that the relationship that's generated by blurring the lines between personal life and work life is something that had been lost in the last 20, 30 years. When I first started out in the 80s and 90s in the business world, there was an intentional blurry line between work and personal life. And that created kind of deep personal connections, those deep personal connections that um, help us all deliver service better. And I see some of that working back in now. And part of it is because my cat will jump up on my lap while I'm on a conference call or something like that. But part of it is also because It's reintroducing the humanity. We have this common challenge, and we're all fighting against that common challenge for the good of the citizens that we're serving. And I see that changing how we all interact and react and work with one another. In that regard, I'm grateful. I would never wish this national emergency on anybody, but there's some good to be derived out of it. Today, we've been talking with GSA CIO David Scheib. David, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation today. And thank you, listeners, for joining Meritalk's podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT in the COVID Crisis. We hope you'll continue to join us as we take a look at Federal IT's reaction to the crisis, the challenges faced along the way, and, ultimately, the success stories that have kept America rolling.